This is Purple Radio On Demand. Hello and welcome to another episode of Flow. It's Elwoods Marshall from Purple Radio. Today I have an interview with Ian Woods, former Sky News journalist and BBC correspondent who has now gone freelance. In this interview, he talks about his experience within the industry, which started with involvement in his student media and local radio, and then later led to a career at Sky News that lasted 25 years. I would recommend to check out his showreel, available on his Twitter and website, which includes his work on the Madeleine McCann case, his coverage in Libya, coverage of American politics and extensive work covering the Richard Glossop case on death row. In this interview, I also asked a few questions about his book, Surviving Execution, which I recently read and would definitely recommend to check out. Due to the COVID-19 situation, the interview was over Skype and at the beginning I had a few technical difficulties, so it cut straight to it. It was a pleasure to chat to such a wonderful journalist with so many inspiring and interesting stories. Hope you enjoy the interview. First of all, thank you very much for your brilliant Q&A for News Associates and sorry for any crossover again. Um, I wanted to ask how your lockdown's going so far. It's fine. I'm, I'm lucky in that even though I live in London where a lot of people uh, don't have any gardens, I've got a reasonable sized garden so I can uh, at least get out there. I've got a, I've got a, a 10-year-old son and uh, we spend a lot of time playing games in the garden and we go out riding our bikes so it's, uh, it's not as bad as it, uh, as it could be for many people. Yeah, the weather's really good at the moment so it's always nice to get out in the garden. Um, so the first question I wanted to ask was um, if you could explain a little bit about your career in journalism so far especially your 25 years at Sky News? Okay, well, I'll start off in sort of chronological order. I began my my broadcasting and journalism career while I was still at university. I was lucky enough to go to Warwick University, which had its own very good campus radio station, a campus radio station that had already produced uh, Simon Mayo and uh, Timmy Mallett wow. uh, from, from radio and was later to one of my successors as station manager was... Uh, the comedian and writer Stephen Merchant. So oh, cool. it's uh, it was a very good uh, nice. good uh, training ground. And while I was there, um, I managed to get a job part time at the local commercial radio station. And in those days, this was the early eighties. This was nineteen eighty three. Commercial local radio stations were quite well funded when it came to their journalism. They had quite substantial sized newsrooms, and uh, they also had quite a big sports team. And I was brought in to do you know, uh, football scores and uh, racing results and things like that and compile an evening an evening bulletin. So that was great experience. Uh, that led me to want to do radio more and more. I was doing lots of interviews with people as they came through the university, well-known figures, both politicians and pop stars and actors and so forth. And uh, gradually, I'm afraid I spent far more time doing the radio than I did my academic work. And so decided to... Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> But eventually, I, I took the view that you know, it was great to have a degree. It was great to have something that said you had a qualification. But if the opportunity was there to take a, a job, you should seize the opportunity when it arose. And I had two great uh, opportunities. I was offered a place on the BBC local radio trainee scheme. Uh, but I opted to stay instead with the local commercial radio station, Mercia Sound, partly for personal reasons, because I liked the area and my uh, then girlfriend was still at university and it was a, an easy thing to do, but also because um, it felt more of a sort of a one-on-one -on -one training. The news editor uh, was a very good news editor. In fact, he was my news editor for 
most of my 37-year career uh, in journalism up to now because we then worked together in, in, in television, both at the BBC and at Sky News. So he was a very good trainer, uh, but it also allowed me to do other things. Local radio was, was a great place to start because you weren't just doing one particular job. My working week was divided into doing news stories, sports stories, presenting a Saturday afternoon sports programme, and also, um, amusingly, presenting a heavy metal um, music program for two hours every Wednesday night called Maximum Volume. So the whole experience was was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. And it came to a bit of a crescendo within a few years. In May 1987, I was the sports reporter when the local team, Coventry City, won the FA Cup for the first and only time in their in their history. Really big deal for a, for a city like Coventry for this to happen. Uh, big parades through the, uh, the city. It was a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, and that was one of my that was my first career highlight. There I was as a 23 year old journalist in the dressing room of the winning team at Wembley Stadium, holding the FA Cup, uh, and it was like a dream come true, absolute dream come true. Only five, six years earlier, I'd been sitting at home watching the FA Cup final with my dad uh, as a, as a schoolboy, yeah, and now here I was in the midst yeah. of it. Definitely. So that was a, that was a wonderful experience. Um, from there, I went on to regional television, uh, BBC in, in Nottingham as a, as a reporter. Um, my big breakthrough there um, was when there was a very bad plane crash. Um, a British Midland 737 crashed just on the M1 motorway near Kegworth in, in Leicestershire as it was coming into land uh, for an emergency landing at East Midlands Airport. Uh, I happened to be on duty that evening. It was a Sunday evening, around about 8 o'clock, and I got a phone call from the, the AA man who used to give us the traffic report for the following morning that where the roadworks were going to be and, and where the road closures were. And he told me that there'd been this crash. So I was able to get to the scene very quickly after alerting uh, BBC in London and uh, local camera crews to get there. I was able to get to the scene very, very quickly and did news flashes into uh, BBC network programming that, that, that day. Um, Michael Burke was the news presenter in the... Uh, in the studio, and we did various crosses on my my mobile phone. <laughs> a mobile phone. Oh, with wow. those, I was very lucky to have a mobile phone. We didn't usually have them, but uh, I'd been covering a, a football match the previous day, which I needed the mobile phone for. And I, I say mobile phone was the size of a sort of small attaché case, <laughs> and the battery didn't last very long. So the battery failed fairly soon into the evening. But I carried on working through the night, and uh, my coverage of that led to me being invited to London to work as a network news reporter at weekends and during summer holidays and things like that. So I did that for several years while maintaining my regional news career. And then um, I was working for a program called Midlands Today, but it decided they decided to split that into two regions. So a Midlands Today coming from Birmingham, East Midlands Today coming from Nottingham. And I was asked to be the presenter of the East Midlands uh, Today version. So I did that for uh, four or five years, uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, loved the experience of being able to have the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition in the studio as they would come through on their, their regional tours and then stop off in the studio and we'd have a 10-minute a cross-examination. It was a fantastic um, experience to be able to, to, to interview very top politicians and make sure you had to do your research beforehand to try to, to, try to uh, get some good answers. Uh, so I did that for um, until 1995, and then I decided I missed reporting. I missed being out reporting quite as much as, as being in the studio. So I started looking around for other things, uh, discovered that Sky News were looking for a sports correspondent. And because that's what I did earlier in my career, 
uh, I applied for that job and, and, and got it and was a correspondent for three years covering the World Cup finals, the Winter Olympics, traveling all around the world doing sport. Again, a dream job. Being paid to do something you love is always is always nice. Uh, that then led into, I was asked to become the manager of the, the department. So I did a little bit still on air presenting, but most of the time was a managerial role directing other people. Um, and then Sky set up Sky Sports News, which was a separate sports news channel uh, from what I'd been working for on, on, on Sky News. And our departments were essentially merged. And I had the opportunity, I had the decision to make, do I help run Sky Sports News as a manager? Or do I go back into news reporting, which was which was my first love, and that's what I did. And uh, from there, within a year, I was the United States correspondent based in Washington. Did that for four years, came back, worked out of London for a few more years, then suggested that we set up an Australia bureau based in Sydney. So I went over there and uh, did that. I had to learn how to use the camera and do my own editing because I was obviously in a very remote location coming uh, from, from London. They couldn't supply me with with uh, the technical side of things very, very much. I would just hire a freelance cameraman when I needed it, but most of the stuff was was me by myself. And then um, came back to London. My, my son was born in, in, in Australia, so that led me to come back to London um, uh, eventually in, in, in 2011. And since then, I was working at Sky News doing a whole variety of mostly domestic stories, but also a lot of international stories as well. I was regularly back in the United States, which was uh, something that I enjoyed doing and knew a fair amount about. So, for example, earlier this year, I was there when uh, to do the story about President Trump's impeachment trial. And also I covered the, the Harvey Weinstein trial in, uh, in New York as well. So I was in court for that. So it's been a, a wonderfully varied career. And that is what I have enjoyed so much about it is variety and versatility. And, and I think those are my, my strongest assets, really. You seem like you've been drawn back to the reporting side rather than the management and the studio aspects. What would you say you enjoy so much about the reporting? Is it sort of the excitement and the breaking news aspect? It's partly that. There's, there's undeniable adrenaline when there is an important story and you're at the centre of it. And, and that is, is, is something that you can't replicate just by being in the newsroom and trying to direct operations. But on the other hand... Um, it's, it's more than that. It, it's, it's about being out. It's about meeting people. And it's about creating your own story. Uh, at, at its heart, I mean, there are, there are different types of journalists in the world. There are some fantastic journalists who spend all their time poring over documents, digging out information, following up tips, investigative journalism. That has never been my strength. We all have to do it uh, on occasions. But what I enjoy most about journalism is the storytelling. It's taking the information taking the, um, gathering your own information as well, of course, uh, but, but being able to present it in as, I wouldn't say entertaining a way, but as compelling a way as possible to make people engage with it. And I've always enjoyed the process of taking whatever limited material I have and just trying to make the best of it. And sometimes that can be a news agency feed which has come in from, uh, a foreign country where you haven't been there yourself, but you're simply taking in four or five minutes of pictures and interviews. I enjoy the process of turning that into a watchable piece of television lasting two minutes, you know, almost as much as, as being out there and gathering it myself. Because to me, it is it is the telling of the story, which is the, the best bit about journalism, not necessarily the, the finding out the information yourself. It's about relaying it to your audience. 
Yeah, I was talking to Winifred Robinson from the BBC and she was talking about how sort of her and her husband are both journalists and she's very much about the storytelling and she wants to get deep into people's experiences whereas her husband is like, this is what happened at 8.04 and 8.05 and like on the dot news. Whereas I guess for you it's more about learning about people and like reflecting their experiences in interesting ways. And that would also translate into the kind of more outlandish stories you've done, like the Mad Max stuff that you really enjoyed that you mentioned on the News Associates call. Yeah, to, to kind of explain what I meant by, uh, about that is that I find it is just as important to be able to tell the and finally story well as it is to tell the lead story well. Yeah. Because while the the, the lead story is is it's an easy one to do in many ways because you know we we, we all know that uh, a major important story kind of almost tells its, itself. People are engaged by it because it's important enough to be the lead story. Whereas you've got to work a little bit harder to do features and to do and finally. So I, I've enjoyed the process of, of, of doing them uh, a lot. The the Mad Max one that I quote, and I, and I did some great stories like that in Australia. Australia was full of bizarre stories that you got to have a lot of fun with. I did a, I did a feature on a woman who kept uh, crocodiles as pets. Uh, she had several in her bath and in her swimming pool. And uh, that was that was great fun. She, she took one of them on a walk every day on a, on a, on a leash down the street. <laughs> That was, that was great fun to do. Uh, the Mad Max story was a man from Yorkshire who loved the Mac, Mac, Mad Max movie so much he decided to move to where the stories were, were filmed, uh, and which was essentially in the middle of the outback. And he would go on hunts to pick up memorabilia, bits of, bits of cars that had been wrecked during the, the filming process, and he would collect them all for his, his Mad Max museum. And that was a wonderful story to film because we, we tried to replicate scenes from the Mad Max movie and filmed them in the same way and intercut images from the movie with, uh, with uh, this this guy driving his own replica car to match the one in the movie and uh, that was that was that was great fun to do. Um, I think actually one, one of the the absolute highlights of my career uh, was when I was based in Australia and it was a story that I did uh, in the middle of the jungle in the island of, uh, on an island in Vanuatu where I'd read that there was a tribe that worshipped Prince Philip as a god, because uh, he and the Queen had made a visit to Vanuatu many, many years previously, and a legend had, had grown up that he was descended from a, uh, a volcano god. Um, and because he had engaged with people who had written to him to, to say, you know, you know, we are, we are these, uh, we are this tribe in, in Vanuatu. We, uh, we, you know, respect your leadership and whatever. And they sent him a, a traditional uh, club which he then sort of held in a picture. And because he sent this picture back to them, you know, he was now, they created a shrine to him in their village. Oh, wow. So to travel, I traveled there by, by myself. Um, it wasn't a story that uh, Sky thought was worth sending, uh, spending a lot of money on to hire a cameraman and, and go there. So I ended up going to film it myself, taking all this stuff uh, up the, uh, in, a, in a truck up the, uh, the this uh, remote jungle mountainous path to reach the tribe and doing some filming with them. Um, through a translator, obviously, was was uh, was just fantastic, and we we did it on Prince Philip's ninetieth birthday. So they had a big party for him. They you know they're all dressed in their traditional clothes. Uh, so that was that was a that was a great experience. But again, that was a that was a storytelling experience. I didn't mm-hmm. come up with that story. I read read about it in an Australian newspaper, and uh, I just wanted to go and and do a good job of, of relaying it. 
And that was sort of one of the things that struck me most about your Richard Glossop case that you focused a lot on and obviously wrote your book on. Um, you said in the book that you're more passionate about sort of investigating and finding out about stories you found through your own research. Do you ever find it hard throughout your career? Have you found it hard to sort of put that same passion into stories that you're assigned that would be like more lead news stories? Yeah, I mean, I think that there, there are always stories that, I mean, I would have said that, I don't know, I guess 90 to 95% of the stories that I've ever covered have been things that the news desk have said, we need these covering. This is happening now. You've been assigned to, 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 to do it. It's is, is, is kind of my bread and butter. And I can't deny that some of the stories over the years you kind of roll your eyes at because, you know, you think, it's not much of a story, this is it. But it's a quiet day. And, you know, you don't, you don't get more minutes in the hour uh, just because there's a lot of there's a lot of news around that day, um, you've got to make the best of, of, of what you've got. And on some quiet days, there are stories that you would do that wouldn't get a look in on a on a, on a busy day. So uh, that is hard. Uh, and uh, you know, my colleagues in the news desk would, would would tell you that sometimes I can take a little bit of uh, motivating, <laughs> or I could take a little bit of motivating during the the, the 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 latter days if it wasn't something that I genuinely thought was was worthy of our attention. But I always pride myself myself that if we had to do the story, you told it to the best of your ability and you had to still put as much effort into it as, as anything else. Sometimes you had to put more effort into it because you had to try very hard to find the ingredients which uh, sometimes weren't really there. I mean, trying to do a, a story which you decided you wanted to do it, but there weren't any interviews and there weren't many pictures, uh, that's a challenge. And you have to work very hard to try to, to, to create something out of, out of, out of nothing. Um, but if I'm interested in a story, it's easier to make anybody else interested in the story. If I find a story really dull, the chances are a lot of people will find it even more dull. Yeah, um, so, sense. yeah, that's, that's the nature of journalism. What would you, you've sort of mentioned a lot of your highlights. Would you say there's a moment or a few moments that stands out as particularly difficult or challenging throughout your career? I think um, moments where you feel your own personal safety is in jeopardy are moments that you look back on because you remember the fear that you had at the time and but the exhilaration of getting away from it unscathed. And that can range from anything from, from being in a violent football crowd where, you know, I've, I've had that situation where football fans are seeing that there is a, 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 a television news crew filming them and they are, you know, throwing bottles or smashing things up and they attack you. And I've been, you know, smacked around a few times in that situation, not seriously, but, but enough to make you, you know, fear the, uh, fear the worst, all the way through to, um, to, to war situations. Uh, and particularly, um, I was in Libya for the overthrow of Colonel Gaddafi. And most of the time, in fact, almost all the time, we were in areas at the, um, at areas where you were on the, the rebel side. You were very rarely with government forces. Rebel side, um, they were welcoming, they were friendly, they wanted the publicity, but quite often they were they were pretty ill-disciplined with their weapons. So even though you felt that they were not uh, showing any animosity to you and they weren't going to turn their weapons on you deliberately, there were plenty of occasions where they would accidentally be chatting to you and waving their, their guns around, and you'd have to try to <laughs> yeah. tell them not to not to do that. So and there were and there were times there. There's one particular incident um, that I remember where. I was in a, a van that we had hired. We had a driver. Um, and I was in the back of the van 
on my laptop, uh, starting to try to edit some pictures together while my cameraman was no more than about 20 feet away outside the vehicle getting some pictures. And while he was there, there was quite a lot of incoming gunfire that was going in between us, basically in between my van and his position. And he was out of the air and he was having to sort of press himself against the, the wall. And that was a truly terrifying moment because, you know, I thought that I was going to watch him getting, getting hit. And there was a momentary lull in it and he jumped into the vehicle. And as he jumped into the vehicle so violently, he knocked the laptop completely sideways and smashed the laptop. And our security guy jumped into the vehicle uh, where the driver had just frozen. He was just a local kid. He was just an 18-year-old kid. And he was scared and froze, didn't know what to do. So our security guy pulled him out of the way, jumped into the vehicle, and we drove like, like crazy to get out of the area. So that, that's, that's, there are moments like that you look back on with, with um, the stick in the memory because of the, the, the exhilaration of, of, of getting away from it unscathed. But you go away from those situations, and I've, I've had situations where you've nearly been shot at and you think, or you have been shot at and nearly, nearly hit. And you, you go to the pub afterwards or you know, weeks later and you tell your friends because it's, it's bravado. And then I stopped doing that, doing that when, um, as I was saying in the, in the talk to, 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 to training journalists, uh, one of my closest friends, uh, a cameraman, was, was shot and killed in, in Egypt. Uh, and um, that kind of changed my attitude to doing those kind of stories, uh, having spent a lot of time with his family afterwards uh, as we prepared for his funeral. Um, that was something that I never, ever wanted to put my family through. So that's when I decided I would, I would much rather not do those stories, and there are plenty of other people who, who did enjoy them. Um, so, so yes, um, it's it. They, they, they are they are challenging stories. They are memorable stories. You feel that you're being uh, witness to to something historic sometimes when you're in that situation, particularly the the fall of Gaddafi. But um, frankly, no story is worth me giving my life for. Uh, I don't think I've come across a story that I would want to to lay down my life for yet. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask, it must be really strange to sort of be an observer of the COVID-19 crisis because you're sort of so used to being in the newsroom or reporting. How have you been, how, how's your experience been with that? I know you're going to, I don't know if you are at the moment or you're planning to do some NHS volunteering as a driver, I saw on your Twitter, but is it hard to sort of be out of yeah. the action? Yeah, it is, and and because of that, when I when I when I left Sky at the end, of, which was you know just the just the wrong time to be going freelance, and having been offered the chance to be Sky's health correspondent several months ago, uh, a lot of people thought that I must be you know desperately kicking myself that I that I that I turned that job down when it turned out to be such to be such an important job. And I, I suppose yes, if I if I had the gift of foresight and knew that this was going to be such a big story, well then I would have put up with the, what I thought were the more boring aspects of being a health correspondent for January and February to, 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 yeah. to get us to, to, to this point. But I have to say that I find it immensely frustrating covering the story at the, at the, the moment because it is so difficult. It is, it is like trying to, to handle jelly dealing with government and scientists in, in what their ideas are for, for solving this. They seem to change constantly. They seem to contradict themselves on plenty of occasions. They seem unwilling to engage sometimes in um, leveling with the public uh, when things haven't gone as well as, as they would have expected them to go through. They feel it necessary to, to cover up their own performance sometimes. So that's, that's a frustrating thing to be, to be dealing with on a, on a daily basis. And normally when I cover stories, it's, it's, 
there are stories which, you know, sometimes last hours, sometimes last days, sometimes last weeks. The idea that this story could potentially be lasting a couple of years um, is, is, is quite, a, quite a marathon to have to go through and to try to do it every day and find interesting ways of telling the story visually every day because it's a story where the visuals are hard to come by. When you get striking images, it's usually when access has been given to an intensive care unit in, in hospital. And uh, my colleague, colleague guy, uh, had the first opportunity to do that at uh, some northern Italian hospitals. And they created a lot of attention and became the most viewed story ever uh, on Sky News Online because people hadn't seen how stark and how desperate the situation was in hospitals. Fergus Walsh did a uh, a similar but not quite as, as dramatic report in a, in a London hospital. Uh, but those are the images that, that really stand out because most of the time we're not really seeing very much. We're seeing some very dull press conferences. We're seeing some uh, shots of, of people not being tested in, in, in car parks. And uh, it's a difficult visual story to, to, to tell. Um, some of the more compelling stories have been the human stories of people who've lost loved ones or who've survived uh, COVID-19. Those are the, the, the stories which, which, which stand out uh, far more in many ways than, the, than the, the, the battle to try to solve this, this terrible issue and to try to come up with vaccinations because those pictures are so rare. Thank you. Um, I wanted to also ask quickly about your book, Surviving Execution. Um, I've researched into the case quite a lot and read the book as well, but I was wondering whether you could exp explain briefly a sort of overview to anyone who hasn't read it yet. So this is a story that I got involved in in January 2015. Uh, not something I'd intended to get into, but as I read more and more about it, I got drawn into it to the point of wanting to make lots of calls. It's about a story, it's a story of a man who was uh, several weeks away from his execution date for a murder, which was actually committed by somebody else. Uh, his name is Richard Glossett. Uh, he was sentenced to death, convicted of murder, because uh, a handyman who worked for him at a motel, which he was the manager of, killed the owner of the motel, and then, during the course of police interrogation, was kind of persuaded to put the blame on his boss, that he incited him to do it. And in return for testifying against his boss, he was granted a deal, which allowed him to plead guilty to murder and was sentenced to life in prison, but crucially escaped the death penalty. Whereas Richard, who he uh, implicated, was sentenced to death because he refused to plead deal because he said, I didn't do this. Uh, so consequently, uh, a jury convicted him of, uh, of murder on, on pretty scant evidence, it has to be said. But if you serve on a jury in Oklahoma and many other American states, uh, you can only serve on a jury which has the death penalty as an option if you believe in the death penalty. Which I was so, so shocked by. I did not realise that until I read that in your book. And I find it yeah. so scary that they sort of excuse so many people that sort of say, oh, I'm not sure, I'd have to sort of see. And they're not sure whether they do it. And they just deny them of being on the jury. Yeah. So it's almost like they're curating it's, it's, the jury for the outcome yeah. that they want. It stacks the jury in favour of the prosecution, and defence lawyers have to uh, fight hard against that. And if you're a very good defence lawyer, a uh, very experienced one, you have a, a slight chance. If you are uh, a not very good lawyer, and most of those who are on uh, face these kind of charges don't have the money to get a good lawyer, then they stand very little chance of, of, of um, getting an acquittal. 
So I became fascinated by the case, just the, the, the aspect of somebody being sentenced to death for a murder committed by somebody else. And as I investigated the story, I was invited to be a witness at his execution because everyone kind of assumed at that point that the execution was going ahead. They wanted to, hi to highlight the, um, what a crazy story it was. So inviting a, a British journalist to witness the execution would be a powerful way of telling the story. And um, uh, I was due to witness the execution uh, several times, and each time it was delayed or you know postponed for usually for legal reasons. But then the final time that uh, I was there inside the prison waiting for the execution to happen, um, we discovered that the execution had been called off because the, the pharmacist who had delivered the lethal injection cocktail, three-stage process that's used in many executions, um, the third drug uh, was uh, the wrong drug. Now, it was uh, still capable of killing somebody because we subsequently learned that the same wrong drug had been used in an execution earlier that year and nobody had noticed at the time. But in this case, it was no noticed. The debate is whether it could still go ahead anyway. And eventually, uh, the law prevailed and uh, the execution was postponed. There's a, there was a major inquiry into all the various mistakes that the Oklahoma system had made. And uh, all executions in Oklahoma have been put on hold ever since. Now, there is a, an attempt to restart that process later this year, and Richard Glossop could be facing uh, another execution uh, attempt later in the year, in which case the story will have to be updated. But at the point I wrote the book, uh, we'd had the, the inquiry, we'd had the uh, information about what had gone wrong, and all we knew was that Richard Glossop was now in limbo, uh, waiting for another execution date or for his lawyers to come up with some fresh evidence that might uh, exonerate him. So we're still at that, at that point. Uh, five years later, we're still waiting for those executions to resume, and I've no doubt that Oklahoma will try to do it at some point, at which case, at which point the story will once again become a major international story, because, because when I got into Half of it, but by the time he was facing execution, it was the subject of an editorial in the New York Times. So it had, it had transformed itself from being a uh, a nothing story into something on the page as well, and many other British newspapers did too. But I was lucky enough to have got into the story at an early stage and befriended Richard Glossop and many of the people involved. I wanted to ask throughout when I was reading the book. It was really frustrating a lot of stages, the way that the legal system sort of failed him. You mentioned the way that they stack the jury, but also the way that his lawyer sort of defended him the first time round. He sort of has a lot of incompetency and doesn't defend him in the correct way. Did you find a lot of like frustrating aspects of the whole legal system when you were writing the book? Yeah, it, it, was, it was interesting to try to, 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 to piece together what had gone wrong at his trials because uh, there were trials that were quite short. They didn't receive much attention, much coverage in the local papers in Oklahoma at the time. Mm -hmm. But what I did was I got the transcripts of both trials he had. The first uh, uh, conviction he had was ruled, um, was ruled uh, uh, inadequate uh, uh, because the, uh, the lawyer had been so incompetent. He'd never yeah. tried a murder case before. He was kind of, um, for want of a better word, bullshitting his way through it and trying to... to um, uh, find out what he should be doing as he went along, and it just didn't work. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was he was a, a, a terrible, terrible choice to to, to handle yeah. that, that case. And he was so bad 
that he didn't practice law again, and the court uh, overturned the verdict and, and ordered a retrial. Uh, what was disappointing about his second trial was that the lawyer who had been working with him on getting evidence together, who, who was a good lawyer, uh, was, for complex legal reasons, told he couldn't actually represent him during the course of the trial. There'd been a complaint made against him. He wasn't able to do it. Somebody else took over and, you know, didn't uh, do a very good job either. Um, I think that if, if Richard Gloss had had the lawyer he has now, I don't think he would have been uh, convicted um, all those all those years ago. So the legal system can be very frustrating in, in the United States. If you don't have the money, you're going to struggle. And if you do have the money, you can often get off things that you really shouldn't have got off. Yeah, definitely. And especially you mentioned the way that they didn't show the video of the investigation with the handyman, which sort of where he was coerced by the police officers. It just shows that there's so many lines of corruption throughout like the whole legal system, which I was really surprised by. Yeah, what I felt quite extraordinary was that when you watch the video recording of the interview that uh, two detectives carried out with the murderer, mm -hmm. Justin Sneed, you can see how they are manipulating him and putting words into his mouth and trying to convince him that he didn't act alone, that something else must be behind this. It can't be just a, a simple robbery. Mm -hmm. There must have been something else that motivated it. And gradually, you know, putting into his mind that he should be implicating Richard Gossett. Now, I could see that as a, as a layman. I showed it to make sure that I wasn't just imagining this. I showed it to uh, a colleague and friend who's a, a former uh, Metropolitan Police detective in this country who carries out a lot of who has carried out a lot of mm -hmm. similar interrogations in the past, and he said that, you know, any of those techniques would have had the case immediately thrown out of, of an English court. Now, we know that there are different legal systems involved here, and the rules are different, but it seemed to me so obvious that this was a miscarriage of justice, that surely by simply showing this to the jury, they could see this as well. And they neither of the lawyers in Richard Glossop's case showed it to the jury, uh, which I just find baffling. Uh, but that's the way they decided to, to, to handle the, the, the case. And, uh, you know, it, it, it led to Richard Glossop being convicted. I wanted to ask about, um, you sort of mentioned on the call, um, you made the bold decision to go out and express your opinion, which you don't do very often, about the conviction of Richard Glossop. How, how difficult was that? And did you struggle with, sort of deciding to do that with your other colleagues? Yeah, I had to, to talk to, to my, my my boss, essentially, as to whether or not we, we did this. I felt it was important that on the morning of the first time I was due to go into a prison and watch Richard Glossop die, uh, I was asked to write a piece about what that was going to be like. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't detach my emotions, uh, knowing that I was going to see somebody I had got to know very well die in front of me. I couldn't detach that away from the story that I was that I was writing. Now, when it came to the television story, I wasn't quite so overt in talking about whether or not I believed uh, his story and whether it was a miscarriage of justice. But in the, the online piece, which I could go into more detail on, I felt that I, that I could do that. But it was still quite a rare thing for a journalist to you know, come off the fence and, and express an opinion like this. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that I had the opportunity to do that. But it kind of, it kind of um, was a bit of a thin end of the wedge because it kind of opened the, the, the way for lots more opinion pieces to be written. 
by 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 journalists that I that I work with, and I'm not always sure that was a good idea. I don't I don't like to see journalists expressing their opinion. I like them delivering their their analysis, but I like them you know allowing the readers to make up their own minds Having so that when they come back to this story if they come back to this story in a month's time mm-hmm. i wouldn't want somebody to to point the finger at me and say look well we know what you think because this is what you said you said four weeks ago so i i do think that it is important to try to uh to try to sit on the fence is a, is a, is a terribly makes you sound like you're um you're, you're indecisive but i do think it is important to straddle all sides of the argument Say when something is a lie, when something is incorrect, if you can prove that to be the case. But ultimately, try to present the evidence in a way that the jury, your readership, will be able to make up their minds. As a reader of the book, I became like personally invested in this case, so I can't imagine sort of the way you were invested in it after going to three poss- like planned executions and getting to know him. I just wondered whether that sort of emotional attachment, which you've mentioned, became difficult to manage with your journalism alongside that. Yeah, I mean, you're always having to to, to question yourself. There, there, there were times when I would I would find out some information, or I would see. I talked in the book about how I saw uh, for the first time Richard's uh, interrogation uh, on video, and I heard him lying, and, and I know he was lying at the at the time. On a particular aspect of the uh, of the case, uh, I do believe when he says he had nothing to do with the murder of um, of, of Barry Van Trees, but he did lie and, and essentially cover it up. And when I saw, when you see stark evidence of somebody lying, you it, it causes you to question your your whole your whole involvement. But then you have to weigh up the situation and and, and, and what, try to figure out why that that lie was told, or you know, does it completely demolish? any other arguments uh, he was making. You know, it, it has been a difficult relationship with, with Richard over a few years. We've had, our, we've had our ups and downs. We had a, throughout the course of his, uh, his year of three executions, we did form a very close relationship. But in the, you know, couple of years after it, we had quite a, a difficult relationship as, as I was writing a book which he initially supported the writing of and then mm-hmm. decided that maybe he didn't like the idea of a book being written. Maybe he should be trying to write that book himself. And that caused some conflict between us. Uh, so we had we had moments where we, we fell out, but I still felt that even when there was a, there were times when uh, I disagreed with the way he was behaving and didn't like the fact of some of the things that he had said to me, it still it didn't make me change my mind about the essential facts of the case. So I could still detach myself from the emotion of the story and focus on. The evidence that I had that I had written about. So um, I, I think it is, it, is, it is possible to do that, even if you form an emotional attachment. If if you're a, a half decent journalist, you'll still be skeptical at all times uh, and allow yourself to um, to question at all times, rather than just blindly following um, uh, your your, uh, your gut instinct. I wanted to ask, um, you said that one of the most important skills you found is asking difficult questions, which would apply to all of your stories, but also especially the Richard Glossop case and the Madeleine McCann one, which sticks out. Um, Could you talk a little bit more about sort of asking those hard questions? Uh, uh, What's the best way of, of, of saying this? There are a lot of interviews that journalists do where you've got to ask some, some, some tough questions. You may have 
you may have got to know the interviewee, you may have been putting it at their ease, you may have been buttering them up to be able to, to get the interview, but at some point, you're still going to have to answer questions that they're going to find uncomfortable. And you've got to try to phrase them in a way where you are being direct in your questions without prejudging what their answers are going to be and listen to their answers and make sure that you are still listening to their answers before you ask the next question. Don't just follow the list of questions that you've written down. Listen to see if anything they have said sparks another question uh, in your mind. But don't jump in too soon sometimes because um, silence is a, is a great way of drawing out information. I was talking about this in the, in the context of, of, of journalism. and I was mentioning it to uh, my, my brother, who's not a journalist, who's, who's working in a management role. But it's a standard interview technique in, in business when you are interviewing for a potential employee. You know, don't do all the talking. Let the person who's on the opposite side of the desk do the talking. Work. Yeah. Just shut up and let them, if, if you know, let them fill the silence. So it's the same. It's the same kind of thing. Draw information out of people. Don't kick it out of them. You know, um, there's too many examples. I think, particularly in television journalism, not in newspaper journalism, but in television journalism, there are many examples of journalists trying to ask gotcha type questions, um, so that they can play the question back afterwards and show their audience, even if the answer produced nothing of any interest whatsoever, but just to show they had the balls to be able to ask this question in such a, um, uh, a, a, a deliberate, a, 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 um, what's the right word, such a pertinent way. Mm. Um, and I'm not, I'm not a great fan of showing myself asking a question if it hasn't delivered a good answer. There's too many TV reports, I think, where someone will give a, a short answer and the reporter will say, so you were terrified then. And the answer will be, yes, I was. Yes. Well, what's the point of that? That, 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 is, that? There's no reason for that whatsoever other than to show the reporter asked a question. Find a better question and find a better answer is, is always my view when it comes to, to those kinds of things. The last question I wanted to ask, sorry, it's gone on for quite a while, um, is um, do you have any sort of advice or tips for aspiring journalists um, that want to go into news? I always find this a difficult one because the, the older I get, the further and further I'm away from my experience of how I got into it. And I know that mm. the media landscape is vastly different from the one that I got into in the, in the early 1980s. So I, I, I wouldn't give advice which would turn out to be antiquated advice and of, of no use whatsoever. But I, I think that there's no substitute for, you know, keeping on doing something again and again and again and asking people whether it's any good. Uh, I think that if you can find somebody who is willing to spend the time with you, uh, showing them your work, asking for advice on how it could be improved, that is the, the, the best learning experience and to, and to keep on doing it. Um, you will have to do probably a certain amount of work unpaid to try to prove your worth. Mm -hmm. But once you have proved your worth, then you need some reward for your worth. And uh, I would not want to carry on working uh, for anyone who is refusing to pay me because uh, I just think that is undervaluing yourself. Uh, I think that when you've got to that point, it's it's time to move on and try to get some more experience somewhere else. Mm -hmm. uh, and if, if you have proved your worth, they will find a way of, of, of keeping you on the, on the staff. Thank you very much for your talk. It was great. Thank you. No problem. 
thank you so much for listening to the second episode of Flow. It was great to have Ian on the podcast. I love his approach to journalism and the way he tells stories. So I'm really glad I had the opportunity to ask him some questions, both about his book, his experiences and his advice on getting into the industry. I would definitely recommend to check out his book, Surviving Execution. It's a fascinating read and I'll list it in the bio on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I'm personally feeling very inspired after our chat and I hope you are too. Stay safe and well and I hope to see you on the next one. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio Podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.